Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast about electronic music and all things synth. I'm Cara C and in this special episode we're going to be exploring the Delia Derbyshire archive. Delia Derbyshire lived from 1937 to 2001 and is one of the pioneering figures in the development of electronic music in Britain at least. As well as undertaking many independent commissions, Delia worked in a department of the BBC called the BBC Radiophonic Workshop from 1962 to 1973, producing a distinctive body of work that explored, as she termed it, psychoacoustics. Delia's most famous work is probably her purely electronic realisation of Ron Grainer's theme tune for the then new BBC sci-fi series called Doctor Who in 1963. This was created using tape, a piece of metal string, and machines not intended as musical instruments, such as a white noise generator, valve oscillators, and a beat frequency oscillator they nicknamed the Wobulator. More about these shortly. Many modern artists cite Delia as an influence and inspiration, including Aphex Twin, Portishead, and Nanita Desai, while samples of her work appear in a number of hip-hop tracks. Delia's archive arrived in Manchester, England at around the same time as I did in 2007. I suspected this gem of electronic music heritage could be a rich source of inspiration and education, so I instigated a small charity centred around the archive called Delia Derbyshire Day. We honour Delia each year on the 23rd of November, which was the date the Doctor Who theme first beamed into British living rooms, and we also design and deliver projects throughout the year, promoting equal opportunities in electronic music and supporting developing artists. You can visit the Delia Derbyshire archive at the John Rylands Research Institute and Library in Manchester, England. This ever-expanding archive collection includes digitised tapes of Delia's working processes, not the finished BBC pieces, films she did soundtracks for, as well as paper items such as working notes and newspaper cuttings. Please see the show notes for links on how to access the archive and find out more about Delia Derbyshire Day. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Mark Ayres, composer and BBC archivist, David Butler, a researcher of Delia and her archive at the University of Manchester, and then experimental electronic music artist, Cozy Fanny Tutti. Let's start with a taste of Delia's music. This is one of my favourites, Dance from Noah, an early example of four-to-the-floor electronic music, made for a kids' TV programme in 1971. So now I'm talking to Mark a trustee for Delia Derbyshire Day and also a key person in the creation of the Delia Derbyshire Archive. So Mark, I wonder if you could start by telling us that role that you've had in the creation of Delia's Archive. Yeah, hello. Um, It goes back quite a way uh, in that uh, I was very involved in the last days of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop uh, cataloguing their collection and uh, making sure that uh, that was properly preserved and obviously now trying to you know release as much of it as we can on records etc um but delia uh, and i 
became firm friends in the in the last few years of her life. I had corresponded with her for a bit and then first met her in 1993 when we made a documentary for the, would you believe, uh, 30th anniversary of Doctor Who, uh, called Doctor Who 30 Years in the TARDIS. And that's when we met and we carried on corresponding and, and telephoning one another regularly from, from then on. Uh, and then when Delia died in 2001, her partner, Clive, was sorting out her house and found all these boxes in her attic, which were basically sort of supermarket cereal boxes, you know, those big boxes that all the cereal packets arrived at the supermarkets in, full of tapes, most of which were loose, not in boxes, and all of which had labels on them, or rather had at one day had labels on them, but they had dried out while they were in her attic, and all the labels were at the bottom of the boxes, so that didn't help. Uh, but Clive didn't really know what to do with them, so he handed them on to me via Brian Hodgson. So first of all, Brian picked them all up from Clive's and then went through them all and, and sort of worked out roughly what was there and then passed them all on to me. As tends to happen with a lot of these collections, they end up with me, and I then kind of not know what to do with them. Because they take an awful lot of time. I mean, they take a lot of time to preserve, but they also take a lot of time, you know, to listen to, to transfer, to catalogue. And, uh, you know, I've also got a day job and a family. So what happened was David Butler, uh, bless him, uh, contacted me, being an interested academic, wanting to do something academically on the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. And I replied to him, not negatively, but I said, well, you know, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop archive is stored at the BBC. It's not particularly accessible. I'm cataloguing that um, as best I can at the moment. And then I had this brainwave and I said, but I do have this other lot of boxes here, mm -hmm. um, which I haven't got time to look at. Would you be interested in those? And he said, what are those? And I said, well, they're all of Delia's tapes. And of course, his eyes, I could hear his eyes lighting <laughs> up on the telephone. Um so I, so that that's what happened and uh, by agreement with um with Delia's estate and with Brian Hodson David came down to my studio for a, a couple of days and, and we went through all the tapes provisionally you know listening to some of them trying to work out if we could which label belonged belonged with which tape that was not always remotely possible but we made a a catalog of of sort of what was there and just numbered all the tapes so that we, we had a basic inventory of what was there. And then off David went with um, a car full of uh, full of boxes. And uh, the University of Manchester, um, John Rowland's library, have been dealing with that catalogue ever since. I'm, you know, consider uh, I continue as a consultant for the estate and obviously now as a trustee of Delia Derbyshire Day with you, Caro. Mm -hmm. And that's all to do, you know, it's all to do with preserving this collection, but also, you know, finding out exactly what makes it tick, how it relates to other things that survive. You know, we're starting to join it up with other collections like Desmond Briscoe's own tape collection, personal tape collection, Brian Hodgson's personal tape collection, because, of course, they all intersect. They're all working together. They all, they all um, you know, cross over. And eventually we're, we're beginning to look now at how it, um, you know, finally fits in with what, you know, was Delia and Brian and Desmond's day job, which was, of course, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Uh, so it's a very, very long project, very involved, but very exciting.
And what do you think the archive, the audio in particular, can tell us about Delia's process and the technology they were using or misusing? <laughs> yes, the Radiophonic Workshop, I mean, electronic music back then was 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 new. I mean, talking the 60s and even into the early 70s, you know, it was a very new discipline. It started out quite literally with people experimenting with electronic circuits. I mean, one of the pioneers in the UK was Tristram Carey, and he became interested because he was a radar operator in the Navy. And he you know, spent his, his life listening to shortwave radio transmissions and hearing all those weird interferences and cross-modulations you get on shortwave radio and amusing himself by, by finding music within that. And it is. You know, if you listen to those uh, frequencies clashing and you know, crashing into one another and over-modulating and distorting and delaying as they bounce around the globe. It, it, they do have a, a weird sort of horrific musicality about them. And Tristan wanted to harness those sounds and tame them to make music. And that's where a lot of these experiments came from. In Germany, it was slightly different. You know, Germany set up two electronic music studios, one in Cologne, which worked purely with electronically generated sounds, and they were creating devices to create electronically generated sounds um, and making music out of that. In Paris, they were working entirely with found sounds, so they're using the tape recorder as a way of harnessing the sounds we hear around us and making music out of that. It's called music concrete. So they were two very different disciplines. In the UK, the BBC basically wanted a way of making the kind of sound effects that you couldn't get from the sound effects library. You know, you could you could get the sound of a door opening and closing from the Foley stage. You could get the sound of, well, I don't know, a load of tin cans falling over either from the Foley stage or from the sound effects library. You couldn't get the sound of a nervous breakdown from the sound effects library. So what does that sound like? And that was where Desmond Briscoe and Daphne Oram came in, uh, trying to find ways of expressing different kinds of emotions and actions for radio. You know, they always say that the radio, the pictures are better on radio, but they're only better if you give the audience clues. And Desmond and Daphne were particularly interested in finding new ways to give the audience clues for emotions and ideas that hadn't been expressed before in radio drama. That's where that came from. Yeah, and if we just think of a couple of examples, like, you know, the, the machine they called the Wobbulator and then the Jason valve oscillators, these weren't even intended as musical instruments. No, they were trying to find ways of sourcing the kind of sounds they wanted to use. And the Radiophonic Workshop always used music concrete, but it was certainly interested in electronic sound. And the only real sources of electronic sound at the time were pieces of test equipment. The idea of most of these bits of gear was to generate a tone, which was a reference tone, which you put into the input of, say, an amplifier, and then you put some kind of measuring equipment on the output of the amplifier, and you could measure distortion, you could measure frequency response, you could measure dynamic range. But these devices were designed to create pure tone. Well, that was great because you could use those pure tones in the creative electronic music. The Jason oscillator was uh, literally a, an oscillator which created audio tones uh, for test equipment use. There's another way of finding these things. You know, there's a company called Heathkit who made kits for home electronic enthusiasts to build their own uh, devices. And you know, one of these oscillators was literally a Heathkit kit. That they, they, they bought loads of these, the engineers put them together, and that became um, a source of sound. The Wobulator was made by Brule and Kaya, and it was a low-frequency oscillator. But it was a low-frequency oscillator which could itself oscillate. So it wobbled. 
it was literally a sound which went up and down fairly slowly and therefore it wobbled, so it was given the name of the wobulator. But basically, it's what we would now call a low-frequency oscillator. And a lot of those early pieces were made by manually playing the oscillator. So you could adjust the oscillator to give you the pitch and the tonal quality that you want and then record that pitch onto tape and then use tape to manipulate it. Or, say the Doctor Who theme, the opening ooey-oo, as we call it, in the Doctor Who theme, that was Delia literally manually playing the oscillator by using the uh, the pitch dial on it um, and then recording that to tape and then adding echo and delay. Um, so, yeah, it, it was... It was very, very inventive what they were doing with with equipment that wasn't designed for that purpose. The first bit of gear which really was designed for that purpose, which came in purposely designed as a scientific instrument for producing sound for electronic music purposes, was the EMS VCS3. Mm -hmm. And that was designed not as a performance instrument. It was designed as an instrument which would create sounds, which you would record onto tape, and you would then manipulate using tape techniques. Tristram Carey, who was one of the you know guiding lights behind that and really sort of drew up the specification for the VCS3, that's what he wanted. He wanted a way of creating electronic sounds, electronic tones, which had a shape and a character, which you would record tape and then manipulate using tape techniques. That's why it didn't have a keyboard on it. And there's some wonderful examples of um, of Delia experimenting or creating sounds, should I say, with the VCS3, with um, is it um, the Noah, the, the animals, the elephant sounds, and all the rest of it that are there yes. in the archive. Yeah, you, you, you asked just now, you know, what is it about the archive that illuminates technique? Well, one of the things that really illuminates technique is in those early days, uh, everything was made on tape and they didn't have multi-track tape recorders. So each line of music was a separate line of edited tape, a separate piece of edited tape. The way the final productions were mixed was that they would line all these bits of tape up on four tape recorders next to one another and they'd press play all at once um, and they'd hope the, play, the tapes stayed in synchronisation. Um, and that's where the, the, the final mix came from. You know, even the Doctor Who theme was done like that. I say even the Doctor Who theme was done like that. That's the way they worked in 1963. Mm. What was great at the end was that in case they needed to go back to those sounds or needed to do a remix, all those little bits of tape they made, all those separate tracks, were wound onto another spool with big long leaders between them. And what tended to happen also was, you know, if they were really diligent, all the little sounds they'd used to make up those 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 tapes would also go onto that archive reel. So you pull a reel out of, say, the Great BBC Radiophonic Workshop archive, and it'll be a 10-inch reel of tape, and it'll be packed. Um, it may well be that only the first minute or so is the final master. What comes after that is all the work in progress, if you're lucky. And that's what's fascinating. That's what's fascinating about these collections and about the archives, what they can tell you about the way that uh, that these pioneers worked. So Delia, you take a piece of Delia's, say, Blue Veils and Golden Sand. Yes, I was just thinking of that one. I love that where you can hear her voice, recording her own voice, playing a note on a piano, recording her own voice and then building it up. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, what, what Delia did for that was she literally played a note on a piano to pitch herself, then sang that note, then played another po uh, another note on the piano to pitch herself, sang that note. Um, she did it all with the tape running very fast. So what's in the archive is actually um, a, a slowed down tape because she wanted very low pitches. But you can hear these very low now slowed down piano notes and then Delia's voice, which again is also pitched down. But that, the process is there. 
And then after that, there's a piece of leader. And then there's all the little sounds she cut out of her voice. And then there's another leader. And then she starts cutting them together in a rhythm. And then there's another leader. And she's starting to make up the voice track for the piece. And then there's another leader. And she starts adding echo to it because she's overdubbing it. And then another leader and she's adding tape delay and uh, spring reverb to it. And then you get, it goes on like that. And then she starts again with another sound <laughs> and does exactly the same thing. And at the end of the tape, you get the final mix. wasn't the only one you know there are other people in the workshop doing um, amazing work what makes Delia special is that she was Delia you know she was she was she had this unique approach to the work you know she was a mathematician she was a musician uh, she was someone who'd lived through the war and heard the bombs dropping on Coventry uh, she was a woman in broadcasting all of that stuff um, illuminates what she did and it's what makes her so important in so very many ways. So for some of us digital folks, um, what do you mean by when you say leaders on the tape? So recording tape, to those of you brought up with iPhones, is is um, is a mysterious substance. Um, in its basic form, it's a very, very, very long strip of plastic um, for master recording. It's generally quarter inch across and very, 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 very thin. Um, and these can be thousands of feet long, you know, on a, on a, on a 10-inch reel of tape. And they're coated with iron filings, um, very, very finely ground and stuck to the plastic with a binder. And as you record on that tape using your tape recorder, those iron filings are magnetised with permanent magnetism, which is put into those filings by an electronic coil, the recording head. Um, and that's how the audio is recorded. Leader tape is literally plastic tape with no uh, no iron filings on it. So it is not recording tape. It's just a piece of tape, plastic tape, you can stick between recordings. And it's a great... They come in all sorts of different colours, you know, white, red, yellow, green, blue. And you can write on them with a China Graph pencil to, to label, your, label the tracks. Right. And... Uh, it makes finding a band on a long reel very easy because it's a bit like for those of you who are now looking at vinyl, that's the nearest <laughs> the, the nearest analogue I can find. You look at vinyl and you can see that those longer run-out grooves, the scrolls between tracks, that's where you drop your stylus if you want to play a particular track. On a reel of tape, you can see where the leaders are, so you can spool through to that leader to play that particular track. Fantastic. So if you had to choose one piece of audio from the archive to say it's kind of one of your favourites, what comes to mind? Well, I mean, I think my favourite tape in the archive is that makeup tape of, um, of Blue Veils um, because it is so illuminating of Delia's process and the fact that she is treating her own voice um, as one of those sounds is something that makes it incredibly personal because when you've listened to the final recording you can't actually really tell that it's Delia's voice it's a texture um, and I think that one of the magic things about so much music that was made in those times was that it is organic it grows it's not performed it is created mm. it is nurtured um, in a way that uh, you 
you know, a lot of contemporary electronic music perhaps is not. And I, th I think that's what's fascinating about it. But everything, you know, uh, Delia left behind such a wealth of material. And, and when you look at it in conjunction, as we are now trying to do, you know, with Desmond's tapes, with Brian's tapes, with all the other tapes, you know, John Baker also, you know, was a, a genius creator of concrete jazz, I call it. I mean, he literally made jazz music out of music concrete. He could make music concrete, which, remember, is little bits of cut-up tape. Mm. But John uniquely could make music concrete swing, and I mean really swing, absolute genius so so all of these recordings really shed light on incredible processes which are now you know long gone i consider myself very lucky i started life in the analog era so when i started out and um, we were still cutting tape and and i i feel very privileged to have ha have lived through those periods because i think having physically cut tape having literally lived through that era when all your sounds, all your work was on little bits of recording tape, um, which you could physically cut together. I think it gives you a really unique way of looking at how things are constructed, which you don't quite... I mean, you know, digital editing is fantastic, and frankly now I wouldn't go back. But digital editing with an analogue sensibility is what... I think those of us who were brought up in that era do. Well, it was so physical, wasn't it, as well? And that's the thing that we're always trying to do with the digital is we're almost trying to take away the technology to get back to that human craft, you know, the physicality of music and, and having something, making something musical. And so it's almost like you're having, we're having to do that work to bring back that. Whereas I know David Vorhaus talked about when they made An Electric Storm in 1969, how Delia was his teacher. And it was almost like mm. a dance, a movement, how she moved around with those tape machines. Yes. There's that film, piece of film of Delia um, working at the workshop, creating the track, which we now know as Poto Fur, mm. um, when she's recording that uh, those little sounds, the little gourd, which is a percussion sound, the little pluck string, which is going to be her instrumental sound. And then a marvellous piece of film where over about two minutes they show her cutting it up, making a tape, repitching it, making a line, syncing it up on multiple tape machines with a tape loop. Um, and the fluid way in which she does that, you know, without really thinking about it, it is because that's the way she worked. You're right, it is a dance. It is a, it is a creative process with which she is totally in tune and with which she is totally at home. Um, and it's, it's magic to watch. So in terms of your role, both with, the, with Delia's archive and with the estate, with Doctor Who, and also Delia Derbyshire Day, yeah, let's say what's your hopes for the future of the Delia Derbyshire archive? I hope that the archive continues to inspire. I think the educational work that we're doing is extremely valuable. Um, I hope that it will continue to inspire new works. You know, it's, it is, you know, we commission new works every year. That, again, is valuable. We're using Delia's example uh, to inspire new pieces of work. My big hope beyond that is that we finally join all these collections together Um you know, Delia and Brian were notorious for sort of working on things at home and then taking them into work and they'd end up, say, on a radiophonic workshop piece on the BBC. Then they'd end up on something which ended up on a library. 
and then they work on something which is basically the same thing which ends up on an electric storm. <laughs> so there was all this sort of cross-pollinating going on between what they were doing at the BBC, what they were doing with their private commissions, and what they were doing, you know, with their private endeavours like Unit Delta Plus and, 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 uh, and White Noise. And that is something we're only just beginning to join up, you know, see how all that, you know, it's not just what their involvement was, but how all these musical elements that they were creating sort of travelled around... Sample libraries. Sample libraries, indeed, they are sample libraries. Um, how all these elements that they were creating sort of travelled. And, and that, is a, that is an amazing thing. You know, I, I, I hope in, in due course we might make some of those actual sounds available, you know, so that people, um, so that composers can use them in creating new work. I, I don't want people to try and pretend to be the Radiophonic Workshop or John Baker or Delia Derbyshire. I want people to be original. I want people to, to, to look at what Delia and John and Brian and Desmond and everyone else did and be inspired to create their own original work f from that inspiration. And, and, and if we can create new composers who are being similarly forward-thinking, similarly creative, and similarly inventive, and hopefully similarly inspirational passing it on. Next in my journey of unpacking the Delia Derbyshire archive for this Sound on Sound podcast special, I'm talking to David Butler from Manchester University. Um, hello and welcome, David. Hello, Carol, and hello, everybody else. And I wondered if you could start with letting us know what's your role, your work related to Delia's work. So I'm based in the drama department in the Music and Drama building at the University of Manchester, and I'm one of the lecturers there. And I helped to bring Delia's archive to the university uh, back in the mid-2000s. So it's been here since 2007. But I first contacted Mark Ayres, who had been entrusted with the archive. I contacted Mark around about 2002, really to ask if there was anything the university could do to help with work that he was doing at that time on the larger archive of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which he had helped to salvage when the workshop closed down in the late 1990s. And he said that the BBC themselves wanted to retain control of the Radiophonic Workshop collection, which is, I mean, it's substantial. It's 3,000 plus tapes going right back to the origins of the Radiophonic Workshop in the late 1950s. Wow. So you know, he, was, he was working on that and that, that would remain with the BBC, but that he had been entrusted with another archive. Maybe we would be interested in uh, helping out with that. And when he told me what it was, I, was, I, I just, I mean, it was just, you know, just extraordinary. And, you know, just getting to see and hear and read um, things which, you know, you, you thought you would never, ever get to see these um, these things and, or, or hear this work again. So that's how it all started. And the collection came to Manchester in 2007 and I got funding so that we could digitise the tapes in Delia's collection. And at, at that point, the archive was the core archive that Clive had left and um, passed on to Mark was paperwork relating to mainly Delia's freelance projects, but some BBC productions in there as well. Uh, letters, newspaper clippings. She kept all manner of 
bits and bobs, you know, information about programs he was involved with. Uh, so Radio Times listings, but also interviews with her in various newspapers, local and national newspapers. Things she jotted down on the back of envelopes or letters from various companies. You know, nothing was thrown away. But all these reels of tape and our main job was to get the funding to digitise them and then find a secure permanent home where they would be inappropriately environmentally controlled conditions um, given that the vast majority of this was magnetic tape and the person who came over to help with that was Lewis Niebuhr who's a, an American academic who specialises in British electronic music uh, Lewis since working on the digitization of the tapes uh, has published a book on the radiophonic workshops the first full-length academic book on the workshop we worked on the digitization together Lewis did the vast majority of them but I did some of the digitizing as well and we did that on an old Studer A80 reel-to-reel -reel ta uh, tape machine from BBC Manchester on Oxford Road as was it's it's long since gone now it's BBC's over in uh, Media City in Salford but they had no further use for it and they very generously let me take one away um, so I trundled it down Oxford Road it's built like a Sherman tank so the digitising was done pretty much in the summer of 2007 some of it uh, by the time Lewis had to go back to the United States there were still a few tapes left to be done and I completed those. So mainly in terms of the audio and the paper items, it's really around her freelance, if you like, work or sketches of BBC projects. So it might be worth sort of clarifying what's not in the archive as much as what is in there. Well, the big one that isn't in there, of course, which a lot of people, I think, would assume would be in there, of course, is Doctor Who. Um, there is some Doctor Who in there, actually. There's... As some of the makeup elements for the notorious so-called Delaware version of the Dot Two theme tune, which was done in the early 1970s, in the wake of uh, well, Dot Two was clocking up its 10th anniversary. It began in 23rd of November 1963, and the Radiophonic Workshop had acquired in the early 1970s a number of synthesizers, which were manufactured manufactured by EMS which was co-run by Peter Zinoviev, who Dede had known for a number of years and collaborated closely with for a short period of time with Unit Delta Plus. So they had got a VCS-3 and also a Synthi 100, which was known as the Delaware, um, named after Delaware Road, which was where uh, the Radiophonic Workshop was based in the BBC's Medivale Studios. And this version is in the um, Dealer Derbyshire archive. And hardly anybody... Um, that version never went out in the UK, but it, it was dubbed onto um, some episodes of Doctor Who which were uh, sold to Australia, and so some Australians got to hear this version. It was only on a, like a handful of episodes. Um, Diddy was never happy with it. Uh, it was worked on by Paddy Kingsland and Brian Hodgson and Dealey producing it. And she pretty much sort of like disowned it. Brian even sort of quite um, vividly said it was an idea that should have been strangled at birth, as he put it. Um, and that, you can hear elements from that in the archive, but the original, that is not there. 
in terms of all the you know the component parts and the different developments of that. And that is at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop tape archive, which is in Perryville at the BBC Archive Centre. And that's where you'll find most of Delia's BBC work. I mean, there are some BBC productions in her archive at Manchester. Very prominently is Tutankhamun's Egypt, uh, which is one of her final projects at the BBC. There is elements from the first two inventions for radio, which are these wonderful speech and sound pieces that she collaborated on with the dramatist Barry Bermonge in 1963-64 and into 65. And the first two of those, The Dreams and Amor Day, they're very well represented in her archive at Manchester, both in terms of paper documents, but also the uh, the makeup material, uh, especially for Amor Day, actually. Um, so w- with Amor Day, she's, her source for that is a recording by the um, a boy chorister uh, who's one of Benjamin Britten's favourite voices, uh, John Hahesi. That was a pre-existing recording. And so Delia took that recording and then isolated the, many of the vowel sounds from that recording and took the, the attack off the sounds, um, looped and extended the vowels to give her just these, well, to enable her to build up these clusters of sounds, just these wonderful, gorgeous, expansive, ambient chords, all sculpted from this recording by this boy chorus. And you can hear on one of the tapes, you know, her in the process of chopping up all the individual vowel sounds and then beginning to manipulate them. I think one thing this really does is it really builds that picture of how she was really part of the ecology. She was, at that time, she really part of the the sort of burgeoning landscape of electronic music in England and, and, and abroad. So in that sense, it really does make sure that we don't fall into that trap of her being a lone genius. Yes, it's always a risk. Um, and, and that's, I mean, that's something that in particular... I think that women artists have particularly, you know, had that projected onto them as if that, you know, that they're exceptions. You know, one of the things that the archive does reveal is just how many people she was connected with, um, whether through her own projects that she was involved with or people who came to the workshop to talk with her, to, you know, to ask for her advice. And, and the most famous people, you know, obviously people like Paul McCartney who wanted to go and speak with her. But, the, you know, there are other people, Brian Jones, Pink Floyd visited uh, the Radiophonic Workshop. She was giving talks. Um, she assisted Luciano Berrio at the Dartington Summer School with a week-long course in electronic music. She was involved with the uh, Society for the Promotion of New Music, uh, which was set up to encourage awareness of new music and so she was involved with them so you really can make a case for her being at the forefront of growing the public's awareness of electronic music and electronic sound in the 1960s 
And there's something around the history and development of electronic music, isn't there? Because there's things like the setting sheet for the VCS3 or her measurements for tape and how it was so maths related because it has to be, it had to be because she was working on tape, but also her preference of maths and music, so harmonics, subharmonics. Yeah, massively. I mean, this, this is one of these archives where you can actually see the artist's method. You, you know, and, and there, are, there are several productions where you get a really good you know, intricate insight into the, you know, the, the gradual development of, of a project, both with the paperwork and with the related audio. When it comes to the synthesizers, again, I think the archive is particularly valuable at demonstrating that she had a more complex relationship with synthesizers, again, than is sometimes reported. She herself is on record as, you know, being quite critical of synthesizers. But in later life, you know, she would say, reflect back on that and, and, and said, well, actually, it wasn't so much the synthesizer that was, that was the problem, it was the people and what they were doing with them that, you know, that was the issue. You know, sort of like the really tight deadlines and the kind of projects that were, you know, being requested there. But she reflected, you know, later on that, you know, she said, actually, I think they could be used so much more creatively than they actually were. And that she'd love to get inside them and, um, as she said in one interview, you know, do something more human with them. So the archive, do, you know, does give you, a, again, uh, a, a different take on, the, on that sort of like rather more sort of like neat, straightforward view that she just didn't like synthesizers. And it's, you know, it, it's not quite as simple as that. And you can see things like her dope sheets of the VCS3, um, which are just asking for, you know, an artist to come along and, uh, recreate those settings we did try actually the nice guys gave us the vcs3 app and um, we did we did try that and i think we got close to what she was what she produced but not exactly because obviously it would have been different for lots of different reasons but yeah it means that you can do that and i think yeah delia does consistently inspire and there's something about having that reflection of someone else's process feeds into then how you reflect on your own. Yeah. I think it's also worth noting how Delia's voice, isn't there some kind of elocution lesson audio in there to, to make us realise that we think her voice is that BBC received pronunciation of that era, but actually she would have had to doctor her Midlands accent in order to be employed by the BBC at that time. Very much so, you know, and, and even, yeah, and, and I mean, that began before that, you know, while she was at school with that pressure, you know, grammar school and then going up to Cambridge of having to transform her voice and, and you know I've, I've made this point uh, saying a little bit about it in the the biography of Delia that I'm, I'm writing at the moment is that you know we often think about Delia transforming the human voice through electronic means and cutting up tape and you know but in the 1950s she was transforming her own voice um, and through you know, sort of um, educational and sociocultural means of shifting that voice into a, you know, into a different form. In the tape archive, you know, some of the most interesting and revealing moments are Delia sort of off guard, just introducing a cue or directing somebody. So she's not being interviewed, she's not putting on that more formal BBC voice and you you just hear you know in a more relaxed moments a, a, a different inflection yeah they, they give you an insight into it in her 
unguarded moments, I think, and they're, and they're quite revealing. Mm. Right, so most awkward question. Um, if you were to pick one favourite piece in the archive, let's go for the audio um, off the top of your head without thinking about it too much, what would it be and why? Well, this is an evil question, Carol, as you well know, and I could hear it in your <laughs> voice as you asked it. It was the d- donations from Elizabeth Cosmian for two houses and the unmade demo queue from the well, two houses from 1980 and the demo queue from the early 1980s one is Delia not working with electronics uh, uh, in a prominent way it's a score for piano heavily processed well yes although I'd, sometimes I wonder whether some of that is also just the fact the nature of the tuning of the piano and you know the actual the, the recording of it as well um, but I think that there may well have been some processing done on it also but it's um, I'd be quite curious to know, like what you know, what the the specifics of that of actually are. That and then the demo key for the unmade film, which is electronic, and it does sound again. It can't be one hundred percent certain, but I'm I think it's a vocoder, and that's really interesting because she did not have access to a vocoder when she was at the Radiophonic Workshop. Peter Zanofiev was developing one, but the the vocoder that the workshop bought didn't come until after she had left so that's just you know it's it's really bittersweet because you're hearing her use something or a process which is not something that she had when she was there you know the, and and indeed there were the occasional project in the 1980s that we we know from Clive Blackburn her partner that she was um, going to Adrian Wagner's studio every now and again and that she created music for a document an ITV documentary about Stonehenge which sadly is not in the archive it may be that somewhere along the line that you know that tape has fallen by the wayside but we know that she did it um and so you know we're still doing things into the 1980s so I think those two the because they totally change the story of Delia's life this notion that she stopped you know engaging creatively and creating music in particular after she left the BBC. Hello, cosy Fanny Tutti. Lovely to have you as part of this Delia Derbyshire Archive special podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. So you've worked with Delia's Archive um, on a couple of occasions that I'm aware of. I wonder if you could tell me about those projects and what your interaction with the archive involved. I went to the archive initially with Caroline Katz um, when we were working on her film about Delia uh, because I was doing the soundtrack. And we went together to the archive to go through the audio files initially because that's what we wanted to sort of investigate really and see what kind of sounds that she she worked on because they weren't just the finished pieces that she that we were listening to they were also the sound sources for those finished pieces so I was particularly interested in in where the sounds began so what interested her most and inspired her to then go on to create these wonderful cut-ups and tape and tape um, compositions that to me was um a revelation, really, and it, and it, I felt quite privileged to be able to do that, and that's what I think Rylands is amazing for: is that you can go in there and you can 
dig deep into Delia and find Delia there. She's just sitting waiting for you, really. And and that's what I found most amazing. But other than that, going, I went much later, but I'll talk about that later as well, when I was writing my book. But listening to those um, audio files with Caroline, and we we're both making notes as we went through them as to what we thought would work well to for the film and the images that she was going to create, which hadn't been done by that point. Um, so sitting there and listening to those takes was just quite wonderful. It was like going into Delia's world, especially when you hear a voice sort of giving instructions and things like that. It was very special. Yeah, and there's just so much variety there, including, of course, not just her own work. It's it's all the stuff she was listening to at that time, which I think is also another just as important insight, isn't it? Yeah, because you, you kind of... I, I didn't expect to see that, really. I don't know why. Her taste was really um, diverse, you know. I mean, from what, we, what she would have called pop music back then to jazz and music concrete, all kinds of um, sounds, really. Yeah. Which says an awful lot about Delia. I think. Yeah, exactly. And then you also said you went back for your project of Resisters, the book. Yeah, I went back um, when I was doing research for my book, Resisters, because I, I particularly wanted to go to the archive that, of her um, school books and the few objects that they'd, that they'd found in up the chimney. You mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back to where Delia began rather than go to Delia when she was already almost fully formed in a workshop. Um, to see what she was like as a child, because I think there's only is there 14 years between us or something. So reading her um, school books, her essays and things like that, and her mm -hmm. physics book in particular was really enlightening because that was just like massive. Because <laughs> I, I, went, I went looking for a music book and it was just like hardly anything in it. And I thought, have they, have they missed a book? Or is this just the second book that she was starting off with, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, but no, it was um, the physics book that was the most exciting because she was talking about the use of the voice and all these different things. Um, so that's what she was into, you know, incredible. And how did that fill out or complete in some way your your picture of Delia? It showed me because I, I knew that she, she was really into physics and she, she knew that sound... That was, what is physics sound, sound is physics so that was her 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 field really so that joined with music and mass obviously so when I saw all this I could completely understand where she was coming from because she was looking outside the music box completely into non-music if you like the, to then create music and that's what fascinated me most because not only was that like a massive amount of information that she'd that she'd put in this book, but a lot of the information she'd gone independently to find out because, you know, that was something that she wasn't supposed to be doing at school, if you know what I mean. Ah, uh, right, okay. Yeah, she went out, she went further than the curriculum because of her own interest in it. Wow. And it's such a solid foundation for working in sound and music because, yeah, she was an engineer as well as an artist, as well as, you know, so many other things, a technician. Mm. That, that gives you that foundation, doesn't it? That think of that young age, she was already trying to fathom out what is this intangible mad thing we call sound and music. Yeah, because she would have been what, um, she was at high school then, she would have been under 15. Mm. And I think when I was looking at these books, she was only about 12 or 13. And when you try and measure that, you know, you sort of think in your own mind what you were doing at that age, 
<laughs> she really was exceptional, I think. And did you see the, um, have you seen the Latin exercise books where you've got her homework where she says um, mm. she conjugates the verb audiare to hear in future and she says the future of audio is dot 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 and for me that just zoomed out and magnified and I was like she was the future of audio and she had no idea at that point. No she didn't. I mentioned that in my book actually because I did come across it and um, and she got... <laughs> Her teacher didn't like it. She said, this basically had nothing to do with what you were asked. The question was nothing to do with that. See me. Yeah, yeah, I love this. Yeah, why write this in red? Yes, yeah. What are you on about? Those foundations are really quite amazing. Mm. Are the the Catholic cards and all that stuff, is that all in there as well? Yes, yeah. I found those fascinating because that was the the personal family side of Delia and they were from um, female members of her family. Ah, okay. It's like a little um, collection, really. So did that link quite nicely with Marjorie Kemp then, who was also the other featured woman in your book? Absolutely, because both were Catholic. Right. I mean, Marjorie was um, hardcore Catholic. Where, I mean, Delia, at that time when she had those cards, was Catholic, practising, but then stopped, you know. She was a lapsed Catholic when she was... By the time she was at the um, BBC working in a radiophonic workshop. And that was what interested me about Amor Day, is because I thought she had a really good background into doing some, some sounds for that. And the fact that the sound that she chose was the chorister as a starting point. And she would have heard that as she was very young, I'm pretty sure, because it was a very common and well known liturgy. Right. So um, she was informed well, I think, and really suited to do the music for that. That series. Yeah, so we, we are asking each each guest to pick a piece, a favourite piece from the archive to talk about, and you picked Amor Day, A Vision of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, tell us why you picked this. And, and because I I found that it said, it said something about Delia, other than her competence in doing something so well to go with the voices that we're talking about. There were two lots of voices, one in favour of Christ and faith and the other who and the others weren't at all. But the fact that she chose this um, Christian liturgy as a starting point, which she she began pure and then deconstructed it and reconstructed it in her own way. Um, she was told not to use any electronics, uh, no electronic sounds. So she stuck with that brief and she used voices, but she completely made them different Mm. to what they started out which is what she you know that's her forte yeah so and in such a beautiful way and sensitive way because like I said at that time she was like um, a lapsed Catholic so she would have had her own opinion about this whole um, particular vision of God or not and uh, that was what was interesting because when I and the the Rylands was fantastic for that research for me because um when I looked at her notes when she did it, they were just so detailed and her analysis of it was phenomenal. You know, I mean, I, I write in the book what, what she what she said and um, I, I could just tell you briefly she, where she just, she said that she would like take the fragments of voice and then she would like cut, switch, scan and then she'd do all kinds of um different things to them and then bring them all together again but she was working she was working with with ideas like to do with Stockhausen mm-hmm. and things like that on, on these which seem very small little pieces of music 
but it tells you a lot about how Delia's mind worked and how beautiful she thought these sounds were. So she was working with something that was already beautiful and making it even more beautiful in her mind. And to think that was just one one project going on amidst many, because that was a busy time for her, wasn't it, 1964, 65? Yeah, I mean, she worked two two weeks just getting these to a point where she thought that they could work Mm -hmm. for what she wanted them to do. So what actual material was there around Emerald Day? You mentioned the notes, but audio as well. What's what's in there that you were able to tap into? Well, like I said, I wasn't looking at Emerald Day. It was only when I I did my research and I, I came across her notes which were, you know, like I said, were really detailed. So it was more of the notes in the archive then than the audio that that informed you and, you know, enchanted you around this piece. Absolutely. About around everything. Right. It was it was literally Delia's written notes. It was Delia. Mm. It's her handwriting and her her thoughts and everything spilling onto the page that uh, that gave me the actual really great connection with her. There's some wonderful language in there, isn't there? There's the heartbeat, bass, bump and all these, like the bleeps and the bloops. And mm. I love all that kind of personal language, but we know exactly what frequency range she's talking about. We all know the difference between a bleep and a bloop. It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The other thing for me as well in her, the more the paper items is all the visual. There's lots of, you know, sketches, drawings, maybe graphic scores. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, she... She was like I think you said earlier. She she was she was an artist, you know. She was she was she wasn't just a musician at all. She you know she went she worked visually with sound. You, know, you were saying I mean, she would do these drawings and she would she would talk about these sounds. You know, like with this Amor Day, as as we all know, she was she was told that it had to be like a, a you know a gothic altarpiece, and she was given the drawing you know for that. So um, she worked from that and she knew immediately what uh, Barry Vermonge meant. You know, when she when she saw the drawing, she knew it. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so why do you feel, you know, Delia's archive might be important and what do you think it can offer us now? I think it's incredibly important because you have Delia in there, literally. Like I said, she's all, everything that goes on in her mind is, is in these notes, even, you know, saying how long she's worked on something or someone who's coming along to pick something up at a certain date. There are all those things going on. And um, so you have a connection with her, which is just so valuable, rather than, um, because with the audio as well, you can hear Delia talking about how things have got to be delivered at a certain uh, certain time and date when she was working on the Egyptian music. And, um, and I think for anyone that wants to... Um, research Delia I think Rylands is essential because it's the only thing that we've got of Delia that remains other than the music or the music's there as well yeah and other than the finished music Mm. so 
With Delia Derbyshire Day, we commission artists to interact with the archive, mainly women artists. And um, being contemporary woman artists yourself, does it have any value for you personally to be able to look back and connect with Delia, but also in some way connect with yourself and your own practice a bit more? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because there, there are times when I was um, working and, and discovering all different aspects of Delia's practice and, and her life where we actually joined forces almost because I can remember thinking, oh, yeah, ex I feel exactly the same. And her choice of sounds to work with, when I initially listened to them with um, Caroline, I was listening and I thought, I've just come from doing my own album, Tutti, and these sounds were so like the ones I've been working with that are my preferred frequencies and, and everything. And I thought, oh, wow. This is, um, yeah, I'm on a nice wavelength with Delia here. And I think I can't help having that feeling of some kind of, I don't know, is it reassurance, validation? I don't know what it is, but there's something there about, you know, obviously we're not the same. Everyone's, you know, whether you're the same gender or not, there's lots of other differences. But it's finding those points of connection. I find some kind of, somehow kind of, I don't know, emboldening, heartening. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Because you, when you're working in isolation, even if you're working with other people, you, you, you're kind of thinking, I don't know, is that all right? You know, is that right? There's that question mark. And I mean, Delia had it as well. So, yeah, there's that connection is that everybody sort of like questions what they're doing, you know. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out the show notes for further information as well as links and details of other episodes in the Electronic Music series. And just before you go, let me point you to soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts so you can check out what's on our other channels. This has been a Caro C production for Sound on Sound.